1: USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was
2: we'll wooded!
0: But be careful because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Back at the end of May. Uh, We talked about how we're probably not going to go on a tour with a live podcast this year because of the (laughs) ongoing pandemic. Uh, (laughs) Uh, We're
2: going to tour my living room. no, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To an audience of cats.
1: Yeah, we've had a couple of people ask if we have considered doing like some kind of virtual live show. And uh, we did have an incredibly brief conversation that was basically like, what if we did a virtual thing? how would that work and then we both got so swamped with just keeping the show going that we have not explored that further uh, it's not impossible but like it also can't really uh predict anything but any, anyway the point the point is one of the best things about touring really is talking to listeners <laughs> answering questions about things people are curious about about the show and that kind of thing so we put out a call for listener-submitted questions for a Q&A episode. And here that episode is. Um, I pulled this uh, this together. We got a lot of questions. Um, and in pulling it together, I pared down some of the longer questions for length, and there were definitely cases where we got a whole lot of similar questions about the same thing. And I kind of merged those things together. I hope I got everyone. I'm very sorry if I missed anyone uh, as we go through these questions to be answered.
2: So first off, we get a lot of questions always, and we got a lot of questions with this query about our research process, how long it takes to make a typical episode, how we managed to do it so quickly, and how detailed our notes are. And these questions came from assorted people. I hope I pronounce all these names properly. Lydia, Allison, Andrew, Harmahack, Amberly, Asaki, Jen, Elizabeth, Rose, Susan, Carol, Sarah, Lee, Molly, Xenia,
1: Jessica, Justine, and Jen. So Tracy, <laughs> yeah, how do we do this? Um, I think this is one that every Q&A session that we do, someone asks something along the lines of this. Um, and we have similar but not identical processes. I think each of us does uh, a, a preliminary Google search. Mine is is to just make sure, is there going to be enough to do this? Because sometimes there's not enough enough information to do that, and then I go through a whole process of um, a lot of searching through Google, bookmarking things that are from um, academic, incredible sources. A lot of stuff from JSTOR. Uh, very lucky to have some very good, robust JSTOR access. Uh, there are book requests from the library. With the pandemic happening, those are only reachable right now if they're digitally available, which is uh, has been very handy that I'm married to a university librarian um, when it comes to getting some of these materials. I go through all of that. There's a whole phase where I have like 27 tabs and 15 different PDFs open on my computer. And I make all these notes from that and then try to work it into a narrative that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah.
2: Uh, I do a similar thing. I think my process probably would feel a little more frantic to Tracy. Um, because I tend to like, I look, I do the same thing where I look and I'm like, is there really enough material that I can get access to for this? And then I try to find one really good comprehensive article again from like a good credible source. And I just read through it to familiarize myself with it. And I, Try very hard to listen intuitively to my gut that goes. Wait, is that is there a part left out here? Is this? It, it seems like there could be more there. Um, and I write out an outline based on that, and then I kind of chuckle. I'm like, just twenty seven tabs. Um, because I have a tab <laughs> problem, and if you ask our IT person, they will roll their eyes and be like, "Oh, Holly." Um, because I I tend to have a cajillion open, and then I sort of always liken it to piecing together a puzzle where and I also lately like the last probably seven to eight months I've gotten really into always wanting a book in the mix which adds a whole other layer of like juggling and confusion Uh, because (laughs) then I often have like a book spread out on a table with me and I'm paging through that and pulling from that at the same time I'm I'm pulling from articles and I'm kind of can tell where I'm at in the process by how many tabs I've closed? Because as I exhaust a source, I note that source usually, and I close that tab, and and I can kind of over the course of of my writing process see where I'm at. It means I I never reboot my computer again to the bane of our IT people. Um, <laughs> that, that's more or less how mine does. Although uh, lately there have often been cases, especially I think this happens to you too, Tracy, when you travel and you'll stumble across something that is of interest. And maybe pick up a book or something along the way. And then, you know, I'll be reading that or, or whatnot about whatever place I have visited. And sometimes that kind of seeds an episode that goes much more quickly when the writing actually happens. Yeah,
1: for because sure. Because I've kind
2: of lived with that content for a little bit longer and in a, a different sort of way.
1: Yeah. Lately, I've also gotten into this thing where I've, I've picked some topics that I thought were going to be relatively straightforward and then they've turned out to just be a lot more complicated. And in the, like, later writing steps, I've gotten into this uh, thing where I've been trying to simultaneously fact-check stuff to make sure it's it's correct, and then also fill in holes that I didn't really realize I had until I started the writing process. And it's like, I'll get a, ta- a browser open with so many tabs in it that there's not even a letter visible in terms of what the label on each yeah. tab is. <laughs> I'll have that many tabs open. And then I'll be like, this is too many tabs, and I'll just open a whole new browser window that gets more, and then I'm like, what is wrong with me?
2: <laughs> that seems absolutely correct to me. I don't understand yeah. the
1: problem. <laughs> um, on on a, a similar note, both Evie and Jackie asked, where do you, you get your ideas and your topics for podcasts, and how do you pick between them? All over the place. Yeah, all over the place is right. We have a, a listener suggestion list that has more than a thousand things on it, and that, that's not a made-up number. It's more more than a thousand um and so that if uh like that's a go to place a lot of times and i'm like i'm not really feeling anything on my short list because my short list in quotation marks has like a 100 things on it which is 2 years worth of my episodes so <laughs> mm-hmm. uh it's not a very short short list um and in terms of picking between them there's a lot of stuff that i feel like i'm trying to do like i want to try to make sure that we get a broad range of places and time periods and people and races and ethnicities and religions and all this different stuff um and so sometimes I'll look back at what we've been doing uh recently and been like okay this has been a whole series of things that were all in the 19th century and there's a like there's a reason it was all related to the pandemic in some way but like let's let's break out of that and like that's one of my deciding factors in uh trying to make sure that we have, um, a, a broad selection of things on the show. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I try to keep my brain open to ideas as they appear before me in the world. Um, for example, I have an idea for an upcoming episode, which I won't say what it is, but uh, I was reviewing a script for another podcast that I'm executive producing, and it's a fiction podcast, but it makes reference to a historical figure that I had never thought about before, and there's some salacious uh, events that happened in that person's life that are just casually mentioned in this other script. And I was like, oh, is that real? And then I looked it up and it is. And then I was like, well, that oh, goes yeah. on the list.
1: <laughs> yeah, this happens to me too. I have, uh, even when I'm on vacation, like, I have oh, notes yeah. on my phone from when I was just on vacation, pleasure reading something, and there was a side reference to some historical event and, like, I make a note for later. Like, look at this, what was this about? yeah. Uh, yeah, and then I'd have
2: the a similar thing to Tracy. I have my own little short list that seems like a misnomer. Uh, and I try to figure out, you know, what's going to feel uh, right for that week. I also uh, sort of am always compiling a list of October episodes. Oh, yeah. Always. Yeah. All day, every day, <laughs> forever. This dovetails, this next question dovetails on all of that. Uh, which is, how do you go about even finding missed-in-history topics from outside of the Western world? What is your process to start looking for interesting people or events? How do you handle research or resources about these topics, events, people, that may be very Western-centric or have been strongly shaped by or Western-influenced? That is from Marissa. Uh, We also had a very similar question from Melanie. It's difficult. (laughs) It is. It's really hard. Uh, and it's one of those things where, you know, we talk about it on the show all the time when we reference an event that happened in another place that, one, we're probably reading something written by either an, a native English speaker or a white European that got translated into English. Um, and so, like, that has inherent bias to it. And we try to always a- acknowledge and note that as we're going along in the the
1: show... Yeah, some of this, um, I, I have relied on listener suggestions for, um, because, like, it's it's not possible for any one person to have a thorough historical knowledge of everything in the entire world. Like, that's just not feasible. <laughs> it's not how the human mind works, and it's not how history works. History is, is infinite, and lifetimes are finite. Um, so whenever we have asked for listener suggestions, like one of the things that we've said a lot of the times is, hey, uh, we would really love to hear about things that were, are outside of uh, these areas that we have been talking about a lot. Um, and sometimes we'll get responses back that are, are sort of along the lines of, I'd love it if you did more African history. And it's like, we would too. <laughs> uh, but when that's the starting point, it's not like finding a needle in a haystack. It's more like it's all hay and you got to figure out which hay is there enough information about that's in English available to us and not written from a racist colonial perspective, which is just really challenging. It is, and that's like one of those things that's like a a, a shortcoming that we recognize in ourselves and our education and the society as a whole um, that like we work to try to balance out. But um, in a lot of ways, there uh, it, it's it's it has challenges through the whole entire process.
2: Well, one of the challenges we don't, I think, often talk about in that is that the turnaround time on episodes is quick. Yeah. Right? Like, if we were like, I'm setting aside the next six months to find out about this part of, you know, history in a place that is not an English-speaking country and really ferret out, like, the best possible resources that are not, like you said, from a biased or colonial perspective... That would be cool, but we're doing two a week. Um, so yeah, the turnaround yeah. is so fast that from a research perspective, it makes those harder and harder. And sometimes we both have ones that kind of bubble along in the background that we're working on. Mm-hmm. But even so, like, we never get a chance to just dedicate weeks and weeks at a time to one topic that really would benefit much more from that Right. Than the format that we have, which is a little bit quicker.
1: I also always have the question in my mind of like do I even have the cultural competence to talk about this at all? And if I don't, uh like is there someone that we might have on the show as an interviewee like somebody who's written a book about something? So it's like we we have tools to to offset the fact that you know we are two human beings with the education and background that we have. Um but still it's a whole it's a whole process. Uh I love this next question. It has a very easy answer. It's from Ian who asks, Have you ever had a topic that you were told you couldn't do? I wasn't thinking of something scandalous, but more of someone, your bosses, editors, whatever the title is of the person above you in the company, thinking that isn't really of interest to anyone and is way too obscure. Um, No, no one has ever told us we can't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Our show at this point, we have... Uh, been working on it while it has been owned by multiple different companies and we have been extraordinarily fortunate to just have creative control over it um, that whole time.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it would be weird for <laughs> if, suddenly, <laughs> if suddenly one of our bosses was like, uh, hey, I mean, we don't even tell them ahead of time. Normally, what we're working on, we have a lot of autonomy, which is really nice. Um yeah. Yeah, it would be super strange. I I would literally be like what is what is going on uh if yeah. if that kind of in dialogue were introduced. <laughs> I would, <laughs> Where I would become did this come from? very very concerned about my future and the yeah. future of the co- it would be super weird. Uh the next one is do you have a time period or type of episode like biographies, battles, uprisings, etc. that you find yourself biased towards or against? If so, what are they? That's from Olivia.
1: I feel like I know your answer. Well,
2: I mean, I definitely love biographies. I always talk about how I'm—I love Queen Victoria. Yeah, complicated and wrong. She's not. Uh, there are problems with Queen Victoria, uh, but I mostly just love the Victorian era. It was such an exciting time in human history, and of course, like, woo, give me that, give me that 18th century France all day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if I have any that I'm biased against.
1: Well, I. I feel like that, oh I do know, yeah I, okay. Uh, I I feel like a lot of our um our biases toward include things that a a lot of um, times are not talked about as much. So we talk about a lot of social history and a lot of reformers and a lot of writers and artists and folks like that who, um at least when you and I were growing up, were not the focus of history classes. Which does mean that we're not necessarily doing biographies of people we might classify as like great european generals right (laughs) like that uh, which is funny because when we get uh, review copies of books from publishers um (laughs) often it is a gigantic stack of generals and presidents and kings um and those are just not the ones that we do the most often um have
2: i ever told you about the game we play in the office
1: no! So, uh, the
2: the fabulous colleague that sits next to me these days, because we've shuffled around a little bit, Mike and I have this game, and uh, Sam, one of the people from marketing, where when I come back in, particularly if, if I have been traveling a lot, which I normally do during normal times, and I come back and there's literally, like, my first day back, always a pile of books on my desk, and we play this game, that are from publishers, and we play this game called um, Hitler-Churchill-General. And so um, <laughs> we, we have to guess, just based on the a- exterior packaging, which of those topics it's going to be. Um, and we keep like a, a very casual rolling <laughs> um, yeah. tally of our success. Last year was a big Churchill year. Everybody wanted yeah. to write about Churchill. So that's why that that became a category.
1: I'm just going to put it out there. We We get a lot of like automated emails, like mass distribution emails from publishers and publicists and folks like that um if you represent authors of color or queer authors or authors from outside the the united states and europe and canada and uh, folks that are writing about history that is the history of people of color and queer people and women um if you rep these authors feel free <laughs> yes. to pitch them to us um because overwhelmingly when we have had Anybody on the show is an interview subject who was not white. Like, that's somebody we hunted down the the publicist ourselves. Mm -hmm. Not 100% of the time, but, like, significantly. Yeah, a lot of the time. Uh, Which, I mean, we're happy to do, but, like, also we're way more aware of the stuff that actually shows up in our inbox uh, than the ones that we have to go on a quest to see, like, who's publishing books this week. Yeah. Uh, Do you have bias against any time periods? I don't know. Well, apart from the whole generals thing, not, like, not a time period that I can think of.
2: See, I feel like there is this uh thing that goes on where the time period I'm kind of shruggy about is one that you're into, so it covers our bases. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I don't really love researching medieval stuff. Okay. I don't, it's not like I have, like, dislike of it. I don't have active dislike. It's just not the thing that usually, like, sparks my excitement, even though yeah. there's a lot of cool stuff in there. Um, my proclivities lean in other directions. So uh, I'm always kind of excited when you're like, here's, here's a mistake. Here's a lot, Tyler. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <was> like, great. <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> um, next we have a question from Tyler who says, your audio sounds so crisp and clear. It almost makes me think you two are together recording. What software or devices do you use to help with the clean audio quality? Um, I don't think we can speak as much to the software. Because our amazing producer and editor, Casey, is the person who does the actual audio editing. But we do both have, like, the same microphone, which Mm -hmm. is a professional microphone plugged into a digital recorder. Um, Previously, before the pandemic, you were recording in a studio in our offices, and then I was recording in a home studio. But still, we had, like, the same microphones so that our sound would sound the same. Yes. Um, And now we have them,
2: and I'm in a shoe closet. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right after the pandemic started, there was a brief window where, like, I was on this mic, and you were on a USB mic, and um, probably, like, very finely tuned audio people could hear that a little bit, like, hear the difference, but... Um, like it was not, it was not like it sounded like I was in a studio and you were sitting in front of a fan on a beach with an echo chamber around you or anything right. like that. Well, and Casey
2: too will like run filters that kind of normalize the sound and makes them mm-hmm. sound similar to one another. Uh, so there isn't that discordant weirdness to it. Um, specific filters I, I would not know, alas. Yeah. Uh our the the next question is Are there any subjects or topics you absolutely will never do a show on for any reason? Similarly, is there a topic you want to do a show on that you haven't been able to? Um that is from Brianna. Karen asked a similar question to the last part of that.
1: Uh you usually say uh the quince, right? Yeah, there's the Dion Quince who um we've mentioned this on a show. I can't remember which episode it was on, but um the the Dion Quince. A set of five quintuplets, uh, obviously, because they were quints. Um, Two of them, as of the last time I checked, were still living and have really just said they want their privacy. And part of their whole story is that their privacy and their freedom was totally stripped from them because of the fact that they were a set of five babies who survived, which um, was an enormous rarity. I think we talked about it in the episode about the incubator baby sideshows. That seems correct. Another thing on the same line of thought is Henrietta Lacks, Mm -hmm. which we've actually gotten an uptick in Henrietta Lacks questions lately. Um, Henrietta Lacks was a Black woman who died of cancer, and the cells in her cancer became a cell line that was used in pharmaceuticals. Um, And it is a super important story. But it's also a story that involves a lack of consent and an invasion of her privacy. Um, uh, And that just feels weird for us to dive into, especially because what we would mostly be doing is kind of a synopsis of Rebecca Skloot's book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And so, like, that's a case where we're like, go to that source. Like, <laughs> Rebecca Skloot worked with the family. She did all that primary research her on her, you know, for her book. Um, and, and, like, it would just be us. It would be a book report. It would be a book report. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, like, we absolutely agree that that is an important story that's worth telling. Uh, and in more recent years, her family has has talked about, like, wanting people to understand what happened with that history. But, like, that that is a case where someone else did all the work. Um, and that is the person whose work should be showcased.
2: I'm trying to think if there's anything that we wanted to do a show on and we haven't really been able to. Uh, Those I, tend to fall over to six impossible episodes.
1: Yeah, they get into six impossible episodes a lot. Um, So I I perpetually have a list of things that I don't feel like I have quite enough information for that are uh, over on that little maybe one day it's a six impossible episodes. (laughs) Amy asks, what's the craziest thing you've done in the name of research? Was there a time you found yourself chasing a bit of history somewhere so unexpected that by the end you thought, how did I get here or what have I done? Um, My answer to that is from while we were still technically working the same job but before we had the podcast um because like as as we said earlier like our our show and previously our like website employer has been sold a series of times i was working on an article when we were still part of how stuff works part of that website and i was still writing articles and i don't remember exactly what the article was about but there was a um an interview that was critical for me to read and it had been published in Playboy. And Playboy was blocked on the corporate network. And I had to fill out a form to get IT to unblock Playboy for me <laughs> at work. And I was just like, I can't believe this is happening to me right now. Like it's And it was like there was, I, I 100% had to have this one specific uh, interview because it had details in it that just weren't available anywhere else. Um, and at that point, I did not have all the same library resources that I have now. I might have had other ways to get to this one article rather than having Playboy unblocked on the corporate uh, machines. And I think I wound up with this: like you have a one-hour window right. to get this article. That's it.
2: <laughs> um, the only thing I can think—I mean, I—I I, um, crazy things are relative. I uh, so what seems crazy to some people may not seem crazy to others um i i do remember at one point when i was working on the axman of new orleans episodes calling a new orleans public records office about an old death record that like the information i found online was a little bit glorpy like it wasn't clear if it had been misentered or what and so it did not go anywhere successful because I was like, "Does it say anything about whether they died of blunt force trauma to the head?" And I just got oh, like, wow. "I just got like, ma'am, what?" And I was just like, <laughs> "Never mind, never mind." Um, so uh, I kind of, I kind of wimped out. At the yeah. End of that
1: call. Um. <laughs> uh, I like that story. So. Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, our next question is, what is your opinion on judging historical figures with modern criteria? In other words, applying modern moral criteria to historical figures or actions. For example, George Washington had slaves and that whole Columbus issue. Are they simply products of their time? That is a question from Paul.
1: Um, so I'm not sure, it, like, the judging is the right word. Um, like, that 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 word comes up a lot. And it sort of has connotations that people are trying to, like, retroactively shame and embarrass a public figure from beyond the grave. Um, I think what really is important is having, like, an honest reckoning with a person's life and work and legacy and their impact on the world. And a lot of times, like, that has not happened with figures who's, like, been, who people who have been memorialized with a statue, but whose own views were appalling. Um, and another important thing to keep in mind is that there have always been people who were advocating against slavery, for example. There were abolitionists from the start. They were also products of their time. So trying to say that somebody was a product of their time erases all the other people who were also there um, who either were the people who were enslaved or the people who were uh, fighting against slavery, and some of those were the same people. It it just it erases all of that and sort of makes it seem like uh, these ideas of racism being wrong and slavery being wrong are like newly invented concepts, and they really aren't. Like that, that they were all there the whole time.
2: Yeah, uh, for me, I mean, I think you hit on it where the word judging is tricky. It's really about contextualizing, right? Like we have to step away from kind of the really uh, sometimes overly ebullient accounts of somebody's life. If they achieved something, often like any of the negative stuff kind of has gotten pushed to the side in many many tellings of their story. And we it's more about like cataloging and contextualizing all of the reality of of who they were and what they did, and it, it's, um, it becomes difficult, because I think we are, by nature, humans want to categorize things for their own, like, ability to parse files, right? Like, mm-hmm. I want to be able to say, this person was a good person, this person was a bad person, that helps me, like, order history and, and how it all shook out and and my view of it. But the the irritating and marvelous thing about humans is that, it's all nuance. And good people often have bad behaviors involved in their, their life story. And people that we might categorize as villainous also often have done really wonderful things. Like, there are very few people that are just pure and good or evil. So it, it does become about context and nuance at that point. Bum, bum, bum. Uh,
1: <laughs> so the last the last question that we have in this first chunk before we take a, a quick break is from Emily. And Emily asked, are there any episodes you wish you could go back and re-record with a different tone, use of terminology, et cetera, given how much has changed culturally since you started the show? Uh, I think I already said that was from Emily. That answer is yes. Of course. <laughs> um, my My biggest example on that is our episode on Alan L. Hart. Alan Elhart uh, fits into the umbrella of of trans history, although he lived before the idea of transgender as an identity had really evolved. Um, And when I worked on that show, I thought I knew enough about trans issues to, like, have the starting point. I got in touch with someone I knew who was a trans woman who very graciously agreed to answer a couple of questions for me, because I wanted to make sure that I was handling things thoughtfully and sensitively. Um, and in hindsight, it was like, I didn't quite know enough to know which questions to ask her. Um, and consequently, looking back on that episode, I feel like it, it reinforces some uh, misperceptions. Like, it puts way too much focus on Alan Hart's body and on the idea of surgery, and, like, there's just a lot more nuance that it could have gotten into. Um, And so that's one that if I had a time machine, I would have uh, handled some things differently. Um, uh, Because it was like, I didn't even know what I didn't know going into it.
2: I mean, there are a million, right? Like, there are a million episodes I would change, update. I always, um, we have talked about this so many times on the show before, but I always kind of... Dither when it comes to, like, would I go back, for example, and, like, change an episode where we had a pronunciation error. Um, oh, right. And part of me is like, oh, of course. And part of me is like, you know what, though? Like, I feel like in a way, uh, because neither of us, I don't think, would bill ourselves as a history expert— um, or a historian, but we are history enthusiasts, and we research and we learn, and so I feel like in some ways that is a record of our own learning process so i'm not yeah. I'm not as twitchy about those things or as like fretful that we should redo them as I maybe used to be and if yeah. people want to judge me on something I mispronounced five years ago, that's fine um <laughs> i mean i can't I can't undo that for anybody and i I certainly have made so many mistakes in all parts of my life (laughs) over the years. Right. Um, But that's part of the record of, like, growth. And I, in some ways, doing the show is what informs that, because as we have discussed, um, I feel like in a way that would be rewriting that moment of our learning process and discovery and making it seem like we knew more than we did, for example, in, like, 2014.
1: Right, yeah, that's actually something that I really have uh, appreciated observing in other podcasts that I've listened to. Like, I have seen how other podcasts also evolve and how they talk about different issues. Um, and so, I I think I am incredibly critical of my own self. <laughs> <laughs> and in a, a way where I extend grace to other people. So maybe that's to be my key takeaway from this conversation. <laughs> 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 Is to extend some more grace to myself for mistakes from years ago. Do you want to extend grace to a listener break? <laughs> yeah, let's have a quick listener break for a sponsor. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
2: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene was booted!
0: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
2: So you hide the books, Gene. and have on star business. I understand now. It's a wise man. Marie is a wiser woman.
0: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas.
3: Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on in its high time. You tell me the truth.
0: Freeze, Americano!
3: Gene! Huh? Oh! Run!
0: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window
0: in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful
3: Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
1: Okay, so we are going to get back to our listener submitted questions. This next chunk of stuff, previously before the break, we had a bunch of stuff that was about like the show and topics and how we do it. And uh, now we have a few things that are more about us as hosts. And the first came from uh, several people. Um, including John Luca, Amy, and Morgan, who said, throughout the shows, th- uh, you mention a few things from the past. I'd be curious if you'd, if you'd be willing to give us a brief synopsis of where you grew up, the path you took, how it led to you two being history podcast hosts. Did you major in history in college? Um, we did not major in history in college. I majored in literature with at a school that had a big humanities component as, like, the the core general education requirements. And I feel like the humanities and literature are like first cousins to history. It has a lot of the same stuff about close reading of texts and putting things in context and uh, an analyzing uh, sources from the past. Like that, that that all fits together from my point of view really well.
2: Uh, yeah, I majored in theater and film study and English with a minor in dance. <laughs> Um, so yeah, not so much with the history. Um, I grew up all over. My dad is Air Force, so uh I would probably say the formative years were on the Florida panhandle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I also lived in Arizona. I lived in just outside Seattle. You know, we scooted around.
1: Yeah. I was in North Carolina my whole entire life until moving to Atlanta uh about a year before I got hired at How Stuff Works. Um and I had, I had tried to use my literature degree to uh, get a job as a writer, and when I was living in North Carolina, most of my writing jobs were like business-to-business communication, and I did not find that satisfying. Um, So I went on kind of a winding road, wound up in Atlanta, got hired at HowStuffWorks, uh, worked my way from being a staff writer to the senior staff writer, and then I moved into management. Um, and then... <laughs> Uh, one day had this kind of weird existential crisis where I was listening to an episode of uh, Stuff You Should Know while driving on a highway, and a gigantic truck drove by me and threw up just a wall of water because it was raining really hard, and I had this moment where I could not see anything on the road, and I was like, I might die, and my job is spreadsheets. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, And I came back to work, and I was like, look, uh, my boss, Connell, uh, I would really like to have some kind of creative project added back into my workload. And then at some point after that, he heard the two of us um, just talking trash at an employee party Mm -hmm. and suggested that we have a podcast. And that podcast uh, was a totally different podcast from this one. It was called Pop Stuff. It was about pop culture. I feel like I remember seeing a question in the inbox about whether we might bring that show back and that's like a thing that you and I have asked ourselves repeatedly. I don't, I don't know how we might make that work in our time at this moment.
2: Uh, yeah, it would be tricky. I mean, I have the bad habit of always going, "Yeah, we'll make it work." And then I have like, uh, days where I'm like, "I'm gonna cry. I'm so stressed. There's so many things <laughs> to do in the next eight hours. What's going on? I can't possibly answer all these questions." Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: I think somebody also noted that, um, like the RSS feed for that show has uh, either vanished or it doesn't work anymore. Um and i i have conflicted feelings about trying to restore that because i have learned a whole lot of stuff yeah. in the last 7 years and i said some appalling ignorant crap on that show oh sure um, I... <laughs> so anyway uh that's kind of the how we got uh to here mm-hmm. um which leads us into the next question which uh which i'll go ahead and read cuz it's so related and that was the the two of us know each other before the podcast how did you meet, and that was from Teresa and Jean, yep,
2: yes, we met in line
1: for Lord of the Rings Trilogy Tuesday, <laughs> yeah, we were each going to watch all of the Lord of the Rings movies in a row on the same day at a movie theater, yeah, um, which
2: was a case it was not a random meeting. uh, we had mutual people, yeah um. I look back on that, and I'm still shocked that I did it because I'm not that big of a Lord of the Rings person, yeah, I was in a costume, <laughs> but i uh I mean, you know, I will uh do all of the nerdy pop culture things, so that must have been the driver there, yeah, um, I would be in a costume if it were a Star Wars event. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, we kind of ran into each other periodically because we had some of the same, like, some overlap in our social circles. But we did not really get to know each other that much more until we were working together. Yeah. um, And then also got to know each other a lot more working together on podcasts.
2: I have that weird memory of us running into each other at the Renaissance Festival in the Tea Room. Wow, I don't even remember that. You ha- were still had a leg injury because you still had your pain. Oh, yeah. You were still rehabbing. And I just remember I had eaten like, a I hadn't eaten this much, but it felt like I had eaten a dozen scotch eggs. And okay. I was just full and cackling uh, and <laughs> hanging out with uh, our mutual friend. And, and yeah, uh, I, it's a weird, I don't know why that imprinted on my brain so hard, but here we are years later.
1: I think what imprinted on my brain is more when we were backstage at the costume contest at Dragon Con. Um, I think that was the year that you all did the Muppet Band. Mm -hmm. But it might have been the year that you did Nightmare Before Christmas.
2: No, it was Muppets. Which, those are always very blurry for me, in case anybody does not know. I used to do... I used to make, with a bunch of my friends, like giant, crazy... Mascoty kind of costumes a lot of the time. Like we would do big storybook characters or whatever, and we did the Muppets one year. And Tracy kind of did a ride along and was like,
1: <laughs> was yeah, I like,
2: was. Um, I was writing
1: about it for How Stuff Works.
2: Yeah, and I, I, the thing is that, like, anytime I'm in that situation, like, when you're in those costumes, a lot of times there's, like, this whole sensory deprivation thing. Like, it all becomes a blur. So I have Mm -hmm. no memory of that. (laughs) Um, I mean, I know you were there, but, like, in terms of specific moments, I could not conjure a thing. Um, (laughs) So so that's your Renaissance tea room. (laughs) Where Where is? Yeah. Uh, the next question is, have you guys gotten creative with any self-care stuff while having so much more time at home? Also, are you sick of your own cooking? Uh, that was asked by Anna, and Jamie asked about self-care in the context of researching
1: difficult material. Um, the biggest thing for me in self-care in these pandemic times was moving an exercise bike into my office. Um, because... My husband is also home all the time, and we had our exercise stuff in this weird little corner in our attic space Um, that, like, isn't really useful for anything, but is just the right size to, like, stick an exercise bike and stuff. But it's adjacent to what is now his workspace, and I felt like I couldn't exercise without bothering him at work. <laughs> That's fair. So, moving an exercise bike down here was huge. Uh, and like made it much more possible for me to exercise, and I just feel a lot better when I exercise. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I have said, I, I don't know if I've said it on this show before. Pandemic aside, and our current, um, unrest over ongoing racism in the US and around the world aside, this has been a shockingly delightful time for me. Like, I think because I was traveling so much, I had gotten mm-hmm. to the point where, like, I would get in from wherever I was on Saturday or Sunday. I would spend all day Monday writing an episode. We would record Tuesday morning, and I would leave from the studio to go to the airport and do that whole cycle over again. And I had gotten to the point where that was almost every week.
4: And yeah. so
2: for it to then be like, no, you get several months at home with your husband and your cats and all of the things that you love in your home. For me, that's been sort of like a weird forced self-care that I never would have taken on my own. Um, so that's been really, really marvelous because I, I love my husband. I want to hang out with him all the time. Um, I've I have joked several times that this whole pandemic was uh invoked by me every day when I left and said I don't want to leave I want to be with you all the time (laughs) oh and now I get to be and it's great um I I have not gotten tired of my own cooking I love to cook you and Patrick also cook a lot
1: we cook a lot our cooking has gotten a lot more adventurous like Patrick has learned to make several things that he didn't know how to make before um he learned to make gnocchi and he learned to make bagels um And we've also had to get really creative with stuff because we've been a lot more intentionally focused on not wasting food. So there have been a whole lot of times when we look at what's in the fridge and then there's a step of like Googling egg potato carrot recipe. (laughs) See what we get. There is an Um, app
2: that does that. Oh, cool. Where you check off the things that you have on hand and it'll be like, here are four things you could make out of that. And I can't remember the name of it now.
1: That sounds awesome. I'll have to look it up. Jeff asked, something I picked up on while listening to your host picks is your change in delivery. And some of these, you have the NPR-style delivery of soft-spoken, relatively monotone. Now you use what I assume is your natural speaking voices. Was this an intentional shift, or is it more of an evolution as you got more comfortable as hosts? For me, both. (laughs) Uh, And also, when you and I joined the show we got a lot of feedback that was very 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 negative um and people described our voices as shrill and unlistenable and so i had this part of my mind that was like if i am trying to sound like a radio person and this is the response i get how about i just try to sound like myself <laughs> because clearly trying to sound like a radio person is not working um and then also uh at, at one point, I intentionally did a lot of self-study about uh, about podcasting and radio and audio storytelling and that kind of stuff. And I tried to incorporate the things that I learned into how I record shows.
2: Yeah. Um, there are a few different factors in it for me. Uh, one is that when we came onto the show, we were inheriting someone else's show. I did not feel comfortable just being myself on someone else's show for a while. That was part of it. Yeah. Two, and this sounds really like sad and poor me, and I just want you to know I'm fine, but I'm just explaining this transition that Jeff has heard. Um, As Tracy mentioned, we got a lot of really, really harsh criticism at the beginning I had literally ri- picked a date on my calendar that was several months out and wrote, if you still hate it, you can quit. You're not a quitter. You just know that you need something else because it was miserable. And so there are some of those where I'm just like white knuckling it through the thing to like get it recorded and get it done because the whole thing became so stressful for a while. Um, d- 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 it is fine. <laughs> 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 I mean, I... I. Um... I have said on the show before, right, like I am a filthy potty mouth. So there's always like a a section of myself that I have to wall off. Right. Like Mm -hmm. we can't. This is an educational show in some ways. And like people listen with families, which is wonderful. And um, it's something I I take to heart and take very seriously and am very try to be very respectful of. Uh, but it is very funny when my friends are like, "That is not the Holly I know," because you didn't <laughs> drop any bombs in there at all, and none of that was really crude. Um, so it it is also a balance of that, right? Like trying to to be genuine and not be constantly code switching, but also be conscious that my very natural speaking <laughs> is uh, is n- not appropriate for all audiences. <laughs> yeah, I
1: I have some of the same feelings. (laughs)
2: Uh, Our next question is from Mary Lee, and it is, I am dying to know if either of you have ever taken the Jeopardy! online test. If so, have either of you been selected for an audition? If you have auditioned, what happened
1: next? Uh, I am the one who has taken the Jeopardy! test. I took it, I think, twice. So long ago that it was not online yet, you had to go to a place um, and take the test in a room with other people. And... Uh, I did not do well enough. There was like a second phase where they did kind of like a mock Jeopardy game, I think. I did not do well enough to make it to that. Um, and then I, I s- stopped pursuing my dream of being on Jeopardy. <laughs> uh, my answer is No! <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: Um, I am one of those people that loves a lot of trivia stuff, but if you actually put me on the spot, I go completely cold. And I'll be like, yeah. I don't know, kittens? Like, I have no, it's like my brain just goes, I'm sorry, ma'am, we've locked this down, you can't access it. Uh, so that was never going to be a thing for me. I can yell the answers from my couch like a, yeah. like, nobody's business. But, <laughs> but I know that's not a, a place where I would thrive.
1: Uh, our last question before we take another quick break is, "I would love to know which period in history you would each travel to if you could. And that was from Kristen.
2: That's also super obvious, right?
1: Uh, I think I think your answer might be <laughs> I
2: mean, it it would be a difficult decision between the court of Louis the Sixteenth before things go really downhill uh-huh. and or, you know, Louis Louis XIV is also very fun. Again, these people are problematic, but I just from a design perspective, I got to be there. Um, and of course, you know, Victorian England would be spectacular. I, I'm in it for the bustle gowns. I'll just be very right. frank.
1: Um, at this moment, I'm actually just, I'm more curious about the future. Like, I wish I could see what everything is going to look like in 50 or 100 years from now. Oh, yeah. Um, but a lot of that is influenced by what's happening in the world right now so i i think if i had a time machine that's that's the direction i would go at this moment let's take a quick break And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
2: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene was booted!
0: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
2: So you ride the books, Jean. and have a star business. I understand now. It's a wise man. Marie is a woman.
0: But be careful and choose your travel partner well. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get
3: down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on and its high time. You tell me the truth.
0: Freeze, Americano.
3: Gina! Huh? Oh! Run!
0: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there,
3: I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's
0: a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful
3: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
1: This last chunk of questions that we are going to answer um, are just ones that I found to be more on the fun and quirky side. And the first one was from Emma who asked, if there was one historical person you could go back in time and slap in the face, who would it be? Was there anyone you covered who was just so annoying that you want to give them a quick smack?
2: Yes. <laughs> I think I said it Um, on the episode we did about him, Thomas Day.
1: Yeah, Thomas Day was really So,
2: terrible. if anybody doesn't remember, Thomas Day was the man who... um in the 1700s adopted essentially two girls from an orphanage with the idea that he would train them both to be what he thought was the ideal wife and then at the end of the experiment, he would pick the best one to marry and he abused these poor girls terribly and was a jerk of the highest order. That is the kindest thing I could say about him because I really wanted to hit him.
1: I agree. I agree. With that assessment, I'm going to ask this next question because it was actually for you specifically, uh, which is what inspired you, Holly, to start sewing and where can people see your work? That was from Heather.
2: Um, I don't really remember because I started sewing when I was three. I grew up in a house where like my mom sewed and my siblings sewed. And so it was kind of like in terms of family culture, it was just there um And, like, when I was three, I asked my mom if I could just have some fabric and a needle and thread. And she was a little wary about giving a needle and thread to a toddler, essentially. But she mm-hmm. was like, you can do it if I can watch you use it. And I was like, cool. And I made this little stuffed fish out of, like, this quintuple knit, horrible polyester which I think my dad still has. And I've been sewing ever since. Um, Where it really, really took off for me was when I was probably like 13 and 14. And like, we did not grow up with a ton of cash, but I got really interested in fashion. (laughs) I was like, I cannot afford clothes, but I could probably make some cool stuff. Um, And so I started making most of my clothes at that point. Um, Like, for my senior year of high school, like, as a gift to me, my mom gave me her credit card and dropped me off at the fabric store and said, get whatever you want up to this dollar amount. Like, I trust you. And that was huge. Um, yeah. And so I just, like, bought a bunch of really, really luxe fabrics to make myself, like, a little wardrobe, which probably still was, like, at that point in time, you know, a fraction of what a normal person would spend on their school clothes for the year, but... And it's just never ended from there. Um, As for where you can see my work, I have a sewing blog, but I'm not awesome at keeping up with it, which is um, at sew-nerdy.com. And it's tutorials of stuff I've made. Uh, If you follow that on Twitter, I'm not really active on Facebook at this point, but on Twitter I post a little bit more, but usually it's, um, I'm really into fabric design right now. <laughs> so, um, it's usually like me designing fabrics and I'll, I'll post a picture of something I'm working on periodically. Uh, but yeah, it was cause I wanted things I couldn't have. And so I was like, well, I will make them. So I kind of got to see, uh, sewing as, as almost an art of conjuring because it was how to get things I wanted that I would not normally have access to. That's cool. Uh, So uh, the next question is from Evan, and he says, what is your favorite nonfiction history book?
1: Uh, I had a memoir, which I, I feel like it counts because it's about a historical person. That's Frankie Manning's memoir, which is called Frankie Manning, Ambassador of Lindy Hop. And I really think that is like my favorite book that I have read while working on the show.
2: I, um, mine dovetails on my last answer, sort of. It is a book that, uh, if you listen to Dress, they have talked about this book before. It's The Corset, A Cultural History uh, by Valerie Steele. And it's just a really cool examination of corsetry from way, 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 way back to modern times. And how, you know, a foundation garment has shifted in shape and also been misunderstood culturally and also become fetishized in some ways. And it's just a really interesting examination of how we interact intellectually with clothing and specifically with underclothing and the taboo of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just I love that
1: book. Uh, Cool. Next, we have from Shelly, what are your favorite alternate history or historical fiction books, TV shows, podcasts, movies, etc., for history nerds? I really love all of Mary Robinette Kowal's books. She's been on a guest on the show before. And uh, like those those are a longtime favorite of mine. Um I suddenly all other writers went out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, <laughs> I'm just laughing because I that happens to me all the time. Um, well, and we also, in our recording session today, we put this one first so our brains would still be working the best. And so that's just evidence of <laughs> how quickly the brain was like, nah, I'm done. <laughs> I really, really love, it's a film, I really love Sofia
2: Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. Uh, It's so fun and it's, it's largely based on Antonia Fraser's biography of Marie Antoinette, which is, I mean, there's a lot of, of, it's a lot more fact than fiction in many ways, but the movie plays with it in a way. Like, there is a moment where you see a shot of Converse high tops in the shot, so obviously, like, they're not being super anal retentive about sticking to historical accuracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just love it. It's like a feast for the eyes, and it's really fun. And an examination of Marie Antoinette from an angle that she hadn't had for a long time, um, you know, it it kind of opened my eyes in some ways about really thinking about historical figures from multiple angles and not just the broad brushstrokes that we often get with them. Um, Yeah, I'll go with that. For our next question, uh, it's from Paige, and Paige asks, has doing the podcast changed the way you watch historical movies or television shows? For instance, has it enhanced your enjoyment of it with a greater understanding of context because you know so much, or does it make it frustrating when things aren't quite right because you know so much?
1: There's a lot of stuff in movies and books and TV shows and stuff like that I don't care about. (laughs) I don't care if, like, people's hairstyle is not Period accurate. I don't care if like minor details are shifted. I do care when historical fiction presents things in a way that are damaging. Like, like if a TV show is portraying indigenous people in a way that reinforces racist stereotypes. Like that's the kind of stuff that I will get really frustrated about. Um, when it comes to, like, whether the battle really happened on this day or that day. Like, I super do not care. Um, Conversely, though, wow, do I care about the Spanish moss in the trees in Outlander when that's supposed to be (laughs) happening in western North Carolina. Like, that is just my biggest pet peeve of that sort of nature, which is not really about history. It's more about North Carolina geography, which the Outlander TV show is very confused about.
2: Yeah, I don't... I honestly think I'm more relaxed about it than I ever used to be. Um, You know, I kind of came into history through clothes in many ways. And so for a long time, it would drive me bananas when there would be like historical issues with costumes in film. Um, I don't really feel that way anymore. And part of it is because when you make content for a while... You just realize that everybody's just trying to make content. No one is like, I'm going to flip the bird to history and I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> like, they're they're trying to do their best and they may or may not make missteps. Yeah. Um but it's it's I can't think of a time where unless they're really trying to rewrite history in a way as Tracy mentioned that is damaging, right. They're just trying to tell their story.
1: I'm like, much more interested in whether it's telling a good story than about whether like they have the year correct on the day that the pivotal historic moment happened.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do, there is one thing, and I don't even um, fault it, and I love this movie, but there is uh, one moment in a historical film that I always chuckle at because it it shifts things in a way for dramatic effect that never, ever happened, and it's young Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I love that film. Let me be very clear. I really love that film. Um, There is a moment at the end where Albert takes a bullet for <laughs> Victoria. No. That didn't happen. There was an attempt on her life, but he did not get hit. Um, It was a, a very flawed and bungled attempt in the first place. Uh, And so it, that's just one of those things that I'm always like, you didn't have to do this. It was good on its own, but... Again, I still love the movie without reservation, so there you go.
1: Yeah. Uh, Katie and, similarly, Kathleen asked a question, which is, if you had the opportunity to sit down and have dinner with one historical figure from one of your episodes, who would it be and why? My answer is, I would love to go to Edna St. Vincent Millay's house and have dinner and cocktails with her by their outdoor pool, because I love her. (laughs) Uh, and that that would just be the most beautiful, wondrous day. I'm. I wonder if I will surprise you with this answer today. Ooh.
2: I think you've heard me say this answer before, but um, like most people would expect me to say Queen Victoria right now. But what I'm gonna say is Charles Adams.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, he's a little history crush for me. Yeah, when we did that episode, I think you said something similar. Um, I was expecting you to say Vincent Price.
2: Oh well, of course. I mean. Uh, of course, of course, of course. Uh, I would just talk about art with him forever. But uh, yeah, I think I'd flirt with Charles Adams. It would be fun. I have a little crush on him. Can't help it. <laughs> um, this is a, a question from a Katie, not the same Katie as the last question. Uh, Anna and Tyler also asked a very similar question, which was, if each of you had to pick the next, next destination for a Stuff You Missed in History class trip, where would it be? Uh we're still hoping that we will go to Italy, but we don't know what's gonna happen. Uh we're we're keeping an eye on the situation, yeah. Um, but where would you pick, Tracy?
1: Well, we had talked about what if we went to Japan, which yes. is super interesting to me. I would also really like if we had like a South America somewhere trip. Um, because there's just so much uh so much. That overlaps with some some of our more interesting episodes, like, in that part of the world. And it's it's a place that I've never been. Um, what do you think? Uh, you know, it's a little
2: bit pat from an American tourist perspective. But I would really love to go to Egypt and the Nile Valley. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that would be spectacular in my book. Um, I mean, I, I want to go to Paris once a year but that's not a new (laughs) destination, so...
1: Uh, We got this question from Lizzie and a similar one from Valerie, which is, which crafting-based episodes were your favorites? Which crafts would you like to do an episode on? And of the episodes you've done so far, which actual things would you get into yourself? Similarly, what historical stuff have you baked or sewn or made after researching it for the show? Uh, A super long time ago, I intended to make beer from an Egyptian recipe... That never happened. Did not get around to do it. <laughs> um, um, I used to knit. And I feel... did We did a knitting episode, right? We, but you researched did. it. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, the irony there is that I'm not a knitter. I know how to knit. Uh, it's not... It doesn't have the same appeal for me as sewing. Like, I remember my grandmother taught me to knit, and I remember at one point looking at her and saying... I can make three gowns in the time it takes me to make this one thing. And she was like, yeah, that's knitting. And I was like, this is not for me. Um, (laughs) Again, it was all about wanting more clothes. Uh, But I loved researching that episode and it was super duper fun. Um, I'm trying to think of anything uh, if we've baked or sewn things. I mean, I've definitely made clothes that were kind of historically inspired after... Mm-hmm. Um, talking about things, but none of them were like historically accurate clothes. It was more like, oh, what I really want, like right now, uh, I want to make a a split skirt, a Victorian split skirt, like the kind you would make for wearing for riding a bicycle, but you can button it down the front and it looks like you're just wearing a regular skirt. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I just want one of those for day wear. That's not even for like costuming or like historical events, literally just to like exist in the world because I think they're cute. Um, yeah. I feel like there's got to be a baking thing I'm not remembering, but
1: well, we had all of the the Ann Byrne interviews that included Oh yeah, I've
2: definitely baked from her books for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Uh I still say the caramel sauce in her I think it's her cake book is like transcendental. Like mm. it's the best. It's so good. It's so good. Uh who is your favorite villain figure from history? This is uh, from our listener, Daria, and she says, mine's Catherine de' Medici. Um, I have
1: the division between, like, kind of, um, like, villainous figures from history that I have a weird affection for, and then, like, what actually I think is the worst villain. Uh, White supremacy is the worst villain. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) But I don't, I don't love... Like, I would not characterize white supremacy as my favorite thing, obviously. I feel
2: like I have to acknowledge Queen Victoria. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I don't think she saw herself as a villainess, and I don't think she was always cognizant of the ways in which things that were going on in her name and the decisions she was making were, in fact, very bad for people and more harmful. But I think we have to recognize that whole imperialism thing is very bad. I'm just getting that out of the way to acknowledge that I know my fave is very complicated. I'm going to go with Victor Lustig. Oh, yeah. Who was the con man who, uh, among other things, uh, sold the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. <laughs> he did my own. Uh, he's just fun. He's a gad, you know. He seems seems like an interesting person to roll with.
1: Um, my answer is um, kind of strange. This is not something that I feel like somebody that we, I feel like we described as a villain. Um, we described him more as an entrepreneur, but like Frederick Tudor sold people on the idea that they, he, sh- people should pay him money for ice cut out of ponds in Massachusetts. <laughs> like he made that into a product. And then where he becomes villainous is that like he, he sold most of his product to slave societies and English colonial ventures. And so it was like he made a whole lot of money off of this. Um, and, like, now he's often described as, like, ah, what a great, what a great creative mind to come up with this whole ice trade. Uh, and really is, like, there's a whole seedy underbelly to all that. Uh, Jordan asked, what historical period would you like to explore in a video game? What events would you like to see? And what historic figures would you like to meet? Um, I've been playing a lot of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and that has been really fun. And they have announced the next Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which also sounds interesting, and may preclude my actual answer, which is that I would like an Assassin's Creed game that is about the saga era of Iceland. Um, But I bet if I were making decisions of the Assassin's Creed creative team, that would seem too similar to one about Vikings.
2: (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to think. Because really, if I'm playing a video game that is historically based, what I want is really good visuals of a whole lot of opulence. Um, oh, yeah. So you could probably drop me in, like, any palace, any period, just as long as there's a lot of guilt things. <laughs> and, um, and maybe a lot of good wrestling dresses. That'd be great. Yeah, I'm, I would be open for almost anything at that point. Uh, I just want it to be really beautiful.
1: Uh, I'm going to read Carolyn's question because it's about Holly. And Carolyn says, one of my favorite things is Holly's laughter. It always brightens my day and makes me laugh too. Anyway, could you do a segment or a whole show with some segments of Holly's best laugh clips? Uh, this cracks me up and I love this idea.
2: Oh, Carolyn, nobody actually wants that, I promise. <laughs> we would
1: just we would email it to <laughs> Carolyn personally. Right? There are people that hate my laugh as well. Just fine. Um... One of the things that this reminded me of, like, there have been times that I have wished that we created an archive of funny things that happened in the studio as they happened, which is just not a thing that we have ever done. Um, But it means that we've just lost some kooky studio moments to, like, the the realm of deleted audio files. Um, Like the time that I, not trying to be funny, it just came out of my mouth wrong, I said, Napoleon Bonifarte. Mm-hmm. And then we laughed for a very long time. And then I laughed for a whole lot longer. I can't remember how long it took me to just get it together. I kept trying to do the next piece of the podcast and then falling totally part- apart again. Anyway, I don't think, we, we don't actually have a file of uh, funny laughing moments. Of but sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I wish we did have like uh, an archive of hilarious outtakes. Maybe, I
2: mean, I laugh at everything, whether it's hilarious or not. Uh, it just is what it is. But yes, I'm sure that would be the bane of someone's existence. And they would, um, <laughs> it would be like their Manchurian candidate trigger. Nobody wants to be the maddest. <laughs> uh, this next one kind of cracks me up. It's from Emily, who asks, what are your favorite ways to eat pickles? Fried, beer, slices, et
1: I left this question for last because I love this question. And I would eat pickles anyway. Any potential way that pickles exist, I would eat them as long as it's not pickled ginger. Because while I love pickles and I love ginger, for some reason, I don't enjoy pickled ginger at all.
2: We are diametrically opposed on this issue.
1: This is also why Patrick and I are a good couple. Because whenever we are out to dinner somewhere and pickled ginger is part of the thing, I can just put all of mine directly on his plate and he will be happy as a clam.
2: I do not care for pickles, but I love pickled ginger there is
1: one way I will eat a
2: pickle, and it is uh on that crazy sandwich that was popular on Twitter for a minute, which is peanut butter bacon, which, by the way, that was my go-to sandwich as a kid for years and years. So it was always in my lunchbox, peanut butter and bacon. But this is peanut butter and bacon and mayonnaise and pickles, and it sounds vile, and it goes on sourdough bread. It's freakishly delicious, and I wow. will eat pickles in that context.
1: Okay. But
2: normally, they all go onto Brian's plate, because I want to part
1: of that. I love them. Love them. Um, Okay, this episode went on for a lot longer than I thought in my head it was going to when I pulled all these questions together. So we don't have listener mail today. Um, I did want to note that Mike, Beth, Neil, and Matilda all asked some variety of question about how we would change the way history is taught in schools, or what topics we would want to see in the curriculum. And, like, we've kind of talked about that in the past, but I honestly just don't want to tell teachers how to do their jobs here, because we are not teachers. We don't have backgrounds in teaching or in pedagogy. Uh, and I also wanted to thank Deirdre, Neil, Angela, Lisa, Anne, Rachel, Devin, Yuri, and Linda, who all asked questions that we were not able to get to, either because, like, we just I didn't feel like we had a great answer to them, or... um. Uh, For time, obviously, time has gone on for a bit. (laughs) Um, So uh, here's our longer-than-usual Q&A episode um, for folks. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone who wrote in with questions. I hope I did not miss anybody in going through them to compile them for the episode. And, of course, we are still going to have listener mail segments. Uh, in our episodes going forward. So if you want to send us a question about anything, we're at podcast at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media as Missing History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show in the iHeartRadio app or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
2: Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene, was good?
0: But be careful.
3: Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast I am the ferryman
0: in the shadows of the afterlife the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest
4: where are you taking me
0: are you death this
3: road is not on any map how much for a ticket